Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Today we are focusing on a nameless person, a woman at the well. And this is a story that many have used in sermon illustrations and in teaching and have been delved into in commentaries and Sunday school lessons. And yet it still is so rich with depth of theology and insight into Jesus. And today we're going to use it for the purposes of looking into evangelism, that it's, it's a ripe field, perfect for the harvest, as Jesus says. Well, if you were a Jew or a biblical Israelite and you were listening to this story, the first thing you would have thought is, Jesus is getting ready to meet his girlfriend. And why is that? Because in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you went to the well to meet your wife. That's where all the single ladies were. It was a singles bar. All of the young virginal women were sent out in the morning to gather their water, and they wanted to get out early and get it because not only would it be needed for cooking and cleaning, but you didn't want to be out in the hot of the day trying to heft water out of a well. And usually the married women were at home overseeing households or, or working themselves in the kitchen. And so they sent out their daughters and the younger women in the household out to go and do this. And the Bible tells us repeatedly that this was a perfect place for the dating scene. That's why Abraham sent his servant and he finds Rebekah for his son Isaac at a well. And then we have Jacob who goes to a well and ends up meeting Rachel and decides to go into indentured servitude for seven years to get after he meets her at a well. Moses will meet his future wife Zipporah at a well, helping her as she is fighting for water with some other of the shepherds, the local shepherds. And so the well becomes this place where you can meet your lady. So when you heard the story in Jesus' day, it was like, what's he doing at a well? And that's why the apostles are like, why is he talking to her? What's he doing? And nobody wants to say anything because they're like, is, is Jesus making a lady friend? What is Jesus doing? And so what ends up happening is the story starts a little bit before where I began with you, and it goes a little later, so I encourage you to go and read it. It's a great story. And in the story, it says that Jesus was tired. I mean, he is fully human and fully divine, and that fully human part gets tired. And so he was tired, and he stopped at the well and rested and sent his apostles on into the city on the other side and sent them in to go get food. And while he is sitting there, out at the noon, it says it was about noon, comes this woman. And she comes out to gather water. And that alone speaks volumes. Because why would you wait until the hottest part of the day to come out and do this heavy, laborious work? It is physical discomfort. And it is because this woman has been shunned. She does not want to come out when all the other women are coming out because she will have to suffer verbal and emotional pain caused by social disruption. And we find out in the story, Jesus says to her at one point, after he asks her for a drink of water, he says, well, why don't you go get your husband? And that's when she has this moment of full disclosure, and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. You've had five, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. And so we get this insight into her sexual sin and stigma, that she has been rejected 
because of the decisions that she has made. And we see, I mean, just imagine how painful it is for this woman. She would rather come out in the hottest part of the day in the Middle East and do this work than have to deal with other women making her feel horrible. This is what she chooses, physical pain and discomfort over emotional and mental pain and discomfort. And so she is out here, and one of the things that struck me that I still have not found a sufficient answer for is that when she gets there and she sees Jesus, Jesus says, give me a drink. And her first response is, what is a Jew doing asking a Samaritan woman for a drink? And it occurred to me, I said, well, how does she know he's a Jew? What is it that he's doing that lets her know that he's Jewish? Because these are two very similar-looking people. They're clearly speaking the same dialect. How is it that she recognizes that he's a Jew? And it becomes very important that she recognizes that he's a Jew. And I went all through my commentaries, and I still don't have a good reason for that. Um, but she recognizes that he is not her. She has her people, and he has his. And they are irreconcilably separated over worship. I know that that sounds really bizarre, like nobody ever separated over worship before. And so what has happened is that the Samaritans were a people that came into existence during the Assyrian onslaught in the northern part of the kingdom. And you might have heard of the 12 lost tribes. Well, they weren't lost, but they were scrambled. The Assyrians, when they came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, their habit was to displace certain persons into other areas of their empire and bring in people, creating social chaos. People can't band together and rise up and overthrow the Assyrian empire if they don't speak the same language, worship the same way, or have the same culture. And so they created this hot mess of people. Well, when these people came in, they liked certain parts of the Israelite religion, and so they started worshiping God the Father. But the problem for the Jews was that they understood that worship should be done in the temple in Jerusalem, and these people, the Samaritans, build altars all over the countryside. And they're like, that's not right. You can't do that. And the Samaritans are like, don't tell us what we can do. We can do what we want to do. And then they have this huge fight about it, and they don't like each other. I mean, and all of the animosity goes back to the fact that they can't agree how to worship Somewhere in heaven, God is weeping at this, that we can't agree on how to worship or that we can't allow for a multiplicity of worship. And so in the story, she recognizes that he's a Jew and she kind of comes at him a little tense and she goes, you know, you, why would you want to have anything to do with me? Because I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus chooses to engage with her. One, Jewish men didn't talk to women that they didn't know. That was not part of their culture. So you'll notice that, that the apostles were like, why is he talking to her? What's going on? And you'll also notice that she's a Samaritan. So why are you choosing to talk to somebody who your people don't like my people, so why are you talking to me? And he chooses to engage with her, but the brilliant thing is that he has chosen to do it when they are alone. Because the conversation he's going to have with her is going to expose her to abuse, embarrassment, and humiliation if he were to have it in front of his apostles who I'm not sure you picked up on the text, are kind of clueless. I don't seem to figure out what's going on here. And so rather than have them listen to what he's going to say to her and about her, he waits until they are gone and then has a discussion with her. And it's only there in that appropriate context that he is able to preserve her dignity and really empower her and give her something powerful. Because he says in the text... 
you know, that you know who I, the Messiah is coming. And she goes, well, yeah, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ, and he's going to explain everything to us. And it'll be amazing. And then Jesus answers her with a very particular name. He says, I am he. And the I am is invoking what God the Father says in the book of Exodus. When Moses says, you can't send me to go set your people free, because when your people ask me who you are, I don't even know your name. And God says, I am who I am. The Tetragrammaton. He says, I am who I am. And Jesus invokes this same name, I am. I am God incarnate. I am the Messiah. I am with you. She doesn't get it. She, she, she doesn't quite cling to that a gift for those of us who are hearing the story later. And she says, well, you know, if you are, then what is going on here? And that's when he says, well, you know, let's have this conversation here. And when he says to her and he tells her that he knows who she is, he knows who she has been stigmatized to be. Her entire existence, her identity has come down to her sexual sin. And Jesus recognizes that. But he doesn't tear into her. He doesn't give her a guilt trip. He doesn't condemn her to hell. Instead, he just says, I know who you are. And Jesus knows who we are. Jesus doesn't just see what we project outwards. Jesus doesn't just see, you know, what we say or what we do outwardly. Jesus knows all of our dark and hidden secrets. Jesus knows the deep hurt in our hearts. Jesus knows the way in which we have been scarred and the way we have scarred others. Jesus knows the thoughts that we're too afraid to actually put into words and speak out loud. Jesus knows all the dark things that we have ever done, all the ways that we have sinned. And in spite of all of those things still chooses to come to us and love us. And that is what she is encountering. So what, what is nuanced here is that in that moment that he shows her, reveals to her that he knows who she is, if she had, in fact, given him water to drink, if she had fished out a cup for him and given him something to drink, he was willing to compromise his cleanliness in order to engage with her. Because of her sexual immorality and her state of ritual impurity, having a drink from her would have tainted him. But he was willing to do that for her. He was willing to go there and expose himself ritually in order that she may have this encounter. And so he says to her, you know, I, I am the Messiah. And when he reveals to her that he knows her, that's when she leaves everything, drops everything. This is like that same moment back on the shores of Galilee when Jesus walks up to four fishermen, James and John, the son of Zebedee, and Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and says, come with me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But we got to go right now. And they drop everything and follow Jesus. And that is exactly what she does. She leaves her jar. She leaves her water. She hightails it back into the city. And she gets there and she says, you've got to come and see. And this is why Christians to this day still use that phrase, come and see. It's an invitation. But it's also a relationship. Not only are we inviting people to experience something, but we're saying, come with me and see. Let us go together. And if you pay attention to her wording, she's very careful. She doesn't say, I've got it all figured out. I know exactly who this is. I know exactly who I am. And I have all the answers and I'm right because I'm a Christian. She doesn't say that. She says, could this be the Messiah? He knows everything about me. Could this be it? Come and see. And that's why her evangelism is so powerful. 
because she doesn't co-opt somebody else's story. She doesn't make something up. She doesn't polish herself so that she has a veneer of I've gotten it all figured out and now I'm going to tell you how to get it figured out. Instead, she is just open and honest. I don't know if this is the Messiah, but something is going on here and you need to come experience it with me. And I'm going back and I want you to come too. And as Christians, this is where we struggle with evangelism because evangelism makes all of us a little uncomfortable. We picture going door to door and ringing doorbells and knocking on doors and big heavy Bibles and head bumping. But that is not what real evangelism is. Real evangelism is telling your experience, telling your testimony, your story. You'll notice that the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the scripture, those are gospel accounts. It's their experience, what they think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not that they have it all perfectly figured out because all four of them don't agree. But they tell their experience. And she tells hers. I've met somebody who knows things about me that he couldn't possibly know. How is this possible? Let's figure it out. And so he invites them to come back and see. She invites them to come and see for themselves. And of course, while that's happening, Jesus then reframes things for his slightly confused disciples. Because now they've moved on to, why is this woman here? To, oh, teacher, why don't you eat something? And Jesus, of course, goes, I have food that you don't know about. They're like, who went and got him food? I thought we were getting him food. He got food? They're so confused. And Jesus says, and this is so important for us, I am fed by doing God's will. I am fed by doing God's will. Literally, spiritually, and metaphorically, we are fed by doing God's will. If you're a Methodist, you are literally going to get fed by joining a Methodist church. We will literally feed you a lot. But you will also be spiritually fed because you will enter into a community. You will have an opportunity to experience God in and through other people and allow them to experience God in and through you. That helps us to grow. It deepens our understanding. It gives us experiences that are powerful and profound for which we are grateful. But then metaphorically, we are fed because the more we realize that we are important, that God has a purpose for us within the body of Christ, that God will equip us and give us what we need, that we already have certain gifts that are unlocked when we engage them, those things just make us grow in gratitude and in faith. They help us to be better Christians than we were before. And so Jesus recounts this for them. And they're still back here going, why was he talking to that woman and where did he get the food from? Because they're missing the point. They're not listening to him. He goes on to say that we take our place in a lineage of spirituality. And that when we come in as Christians, we aren't the beginning. It's like all of Christianity hadn't got it figured out until Crozet United Methodist showed up, and now we are going to show the world how it's done. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his apostles, you are going to go out and reap that which you did not sow. God has been sowing seeds. These Jewish apostles did not go out and sow seeds with the Samaritan city. They didn't. But she did. She went back in there and she told them her testimony and she invited them. She gave them that crucial invitation, come and see with me. 
And they did. And when they got there and they were excited to meet Jesus, when they got there, then they were so enthralled with him and what he had to say that then they said, come and stay with us for two days. Two days. He stayed with them. He received their hospitality and blessed them. Meanwhile, he went to his hometown and they ran him out and tried to throw him off a cliff. But these people were so impacted, they were so ready to receive someone who would embrace them. They were a rejected, despised people. And he took the woman at the well and he took her from pariah to prophet. He was able to transform her in one encounter to empower her and allow her to share her truth. And in that moment, everything that she had done became part of her testimony. It was redeemed. She didn't pretend like she had always had her act together. They knew who she was. Her story was hers. That's what's so hard for Christians to realize is that you don't need some perfect testimony. People are like, I can't, I can't be an evangelist because I haven't been to seminary. Going to seminary does not qualify you to be an evangelist. It qualifies you to do this. What qualifies you to be an evangelist is that you have had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. That's what makes you an evangelist. What makes you an evangelist is that you have to be honest and authentic about who you are. And it doesn't have to be something radically profound, like my plane went down in Africa and I converted an entire village. That's not what people need to hear. People need to hear that when I go to church, I feel God moving in the music. You've got to come and see what that's like. Or when I serve in the food pantry, I am so amazed at how God is able to meet people and provide their needs right here that God is able to use this to bless that. Those are the testimonies that we need to hear. In my hour of need, when everything was dark and depressing and I was in sorrow and mourning, God was able to sustain me and help bring me into a bright day. Those are the testimonies that the world needs to hear. They don't need the Reader's Digest of Christianity where you tell somebody else a story. I got news for people. If they want that, it's called the Bible. And it's better than anything else that we're going to make up. No, people want your testimony. They want to hear how you have been impacted. They want to know that all this God and this Messiah that is supposedly in these heavy pages over here, that this same God is active and alive and for them now. And they only get that if we tell our story. That's why evangelism is so important. And the woman at the well shows us that, that it is powerful. There's often a saying that has historically arisen in Christianity about, you know, how many souls did we save today? And I've saved this many souls. None of us save any souls because none of us got up on that cross. We don't save any souls. But we do invite people to experience how amazing God is. We do invite people to experience the same kind of grace, love, forgiveness, community, and joy that we find in the body of Christ. That we do. And when we are willing to put ourselves out there, and it's vulnerable, it's vulnerable. When we are willing to put ourselves out there, that is the moment when God truly goes to work through us. She went back to the people that knew who she was and despised her and tortured her socially and chose to share the message with them. She went back to a people who had continued to be part of her daily suffering and offered them a glimpse at Jesus. 
That is our legacy as Christians, that we are given an opportunity to use who we are and what we know, what we have experienced, to tell of Jesus Christ. And if all of us do that, I mean, none of us are probably going to go out there and convert 200 people. Probably not. I don't even think I've converted 200 people. But if all of us went out there and had an experience and sowed some seed and watered some fertile ground with one person, and all of us over the course of time were able to bring one more person into a relationship with Jesus Christ or into a relationship with the body of Christ, then that's double our numbers. That is double who we are. That is fruitfulness. That is what Christ demands of disciples. This is not a time for us to say, oh, there's a season. That's what he's trying to tell his apostles. You keep saying there's a season. Oh, four, t- four months from now, it'll be harvest season. And we live in a culture that thinks that there's a season for things. Like there's spring cleaning. That's a season. There's summer vacation. That's a season, right? There's winter heart. There's all kinds of stuff that we do where we think it's seasonal. Building the kingdom of God is seasonless. Being a Christian And inviting people to meet and love Jesus Christ is seasonless. And the harvest time is now, Jesus says. We should be at work right now. If we're putting off telling somebody our story or inviting somebody to come and see, then we are not listening to what Jesus is saying. And we're the apostles going, why is he talking to this lady? And where is he getting this food from? And man, I thought we were supposed to be going to Jerusalem. Why are we hanging out with these people? Instead... We are invited to focus. They're asking all the wrong questions. The disciples are asking all the wrong questions. And the woman at the well, and a piece that I didn't read to you, she asked the right question. Where is this water and where do I get it? Where is it? Because I want it. I have to work so hard just to get my water. Where is the water that if I drink from it, I will never thirst again? Where is that? Because that would change my life. And he says, it's right here. And I'm going to give it to you. And he does. And he doesn't just change her life. He changes a city's life. She converts a city. A whole city is converted because of her. And the best part, the most redemptive part is at the end when they turn back to her and say, we no longer believe because of you. We believe because we saw. We came and we saw and we listened and we felt and we encountered and we experienced. And now he is our savior. That's what we want. We don't want people to be indebted to us because they think they have Jesus through us. We're not here to give people Jesus according to Crozet United Methodist Church. We're here to give people Jesus and let Crozet get out of the way. And if we are willing to do that, then this world will change person by person. Hearts will change. Lives will be enriched. And when that happens, the world cannot stay as it is. Things change. And how fast things change to look like the kingdom of God is entirely dependent upon when all the servants of Jesus Christ decide to start going out and harvesting. And today, we are reminded that this is necessary work. And we don't go out there and act like we know everything. We don't know everything. People will say to me, I don't, I don't want to tell somebody my story or like invite people because they'll ask a question and I won't know the answer. They're going to ask me a question and I won't know the answer. Have you been in the back of the church on Sunday morning? 
But that's okay because God has given us an answer, right? An answer. I don't know, but I can find out. Or I don't know, but why don't you come with me and we'll see if we can figure out the answer. I don't know. Sometimes that is the best answer because it's the right one. It's the honest one. I don't know. I don't know. But I think that we should do this together. Let's figure it out. And so today, we have the opportunity to come up here as imperfect people, because we're not perfect, to come up here and be reminded that despite all the things that we have thought and said and done and felt that slander Jesus Christ and break God's heart, that today we can come up here and once more receive tangible proof that God is with us. Because Jesus knows that we need to be continually reminded or we will be like those disciples and not get it. Because if you come on Holy Thursday, you will hear the text where Jesus institutes Holy Communion and they're all like, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? What is this bread thing he's doing? Why does he keep giving us this cup? This is weird. Because the truth is that Jesus is smarter than we are. And Jesus recognizes that sometimes we just need to come and see. And here at this table is where Jesus always waits. Jesus always serves us. Jesus always accepts and forgives us. Now, isn't that something worth inviting others to come and see? May this be who we are and what we do. Because the world is in desperate need of knowing that the Lord is theirs. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.